0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday, time to go into the vault. This episode originally published in February of 2017. And this is the second part of a pair of episodes that I did with our previous co-host, Christian Sager, uh, where we talked about the work of the Dutch-American primatologist Frans Duval and his book, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are. In this episode, we actually speak with Frans Duval himself.
1: Yeah. And so this is this is really the, the prime reason uh, I realized we needed to, to rerun these. I don't think we've run these uh, as Vault episodes previously. And here we have this great interview. Uh, it, it just had to see the light of day again. Let's do it.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I'm Joe McCormick,
1: and I'm Christian
0: Sager, and our regular host Robert Lamb is not with us today. He's off chilling somewhere else, so uh, Christian and I are flying solo. This is going to be part two of a two-part episode uh, on animal intelligence and cognition, specifically with regard to a book that we read uh, by uh, the the primatologist and evolutionary cognitician. Would that be the term? Yeah, I
1: was trying to figure <laughs> out how you would singularize that. Yeah,
0: cosmetologist. No. <laughs> Uh, uh, Franz Duvall, who, who wrote this book, um, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are?
1: Right. Yeah. So if you, if you haven't, uh, we encourage you to go listen to that other episode. Yeah. Part first.
0: one will, will lay the groundwork for this one that we're talking
1: about today. Mm-hmm. And within that episode, we mainly use Duvall's work to talk about the history of how science has looked at animal intelligence. Uh, and in this episode, we find ourselves now in the present day looking at a field that Duvall likes to call evolutionary cognition.
0: Right, and so this is sort of a synthesized field that has come about more recently by combining the best parts of previous ideas, like the the comparative psychologists or the behaviorists. These were the people who emphasized learning and conditioned responses, and then the ethologists, the people who uh, specialized in studying animals in their natural habitats to see what their naturally inclined behaviors were.
1: Yeah, and so to recap very briefly, Briefly from the last episode, Uh, he compares the wall between studies of behaviorism and studies of ethology, and even now going into evolutionary cognition as similar to ideology. And specifically, he compares it to. The ideology between science and creationism. Wow. So that's saying that there's like a pretty, a pretty hard stop in
0: between them. It's not like it's easy to argue from one position to the other. Yeah.
1: In fact, and I don't believe that he came up with these categories, but this is within the book that there are three types of players within this argument. Okay. About animal cognition. Yeah. And he refers to the first as slayers. Uh, and Slayers, in this case, are the people who felt empowered by the human-centric idea that we are the center of the cosmos and how could animals possibly be intelligent. Yeah, who
0: insist on human uniqueness. And I want to talk more about this in a minute.
1: Yeah. The other two are Skeptics and the third group is proponents. So the proponents obviously would be the people who are
0: in favor of the idea of animal cognition, saying, yeah, yeah animals are thinking uh, cognition is an idea that makes sense with them. And the skeptics would be the ones who are uh, – Skeptical, They're reserving
1: judgment. They're saying, I'm not sure yet. Give me more research. Yeah. How about you do a study showing me X, Y, and Z? That kind of thing. Right. And uh, Duvall and I I think most evolutionary cognitionists, uh, (laughs) that they would say the slayers are mostly gone nowadays, but the skeptics and the proponents remain. And Duvall says he really appreciates having the skeptics around because it makes for better research. He he himself is a proponent. He says,
0: yeah, I think we can find clear evidence of animal cognition, animal thinking, uh, and and strong animal intelligence, but it's good to have skeptics uh, forcing us to be honest and trying to keep us on our toes.
1: But evolutionary cognition is essentially a blend of these two schools, right?
0: Yeah, of behaviorism and ethology or comparative
1: psychology and ethology. And he sees himself actually as being part of what he calls the third generation of evolutionary cognition scientists. Yeah. So he says that there were two generations before him. He's sort of, you know, lucky that he, he saw somewhat of this, this, uh, ideological battle play out the wall, but that it's mostly come down, uh, and that people are working together now.
0: So another one of the really interesting ideas in this book is, uh, the way I would say maybe it's one of the central claims of the book. One of the central things that Duvall is driving at is against claims of human uniqueness um and uh, deval for example one form of this he uses this term which is going to sound inflammatory to some people mm. he uses the term neo creationism which he says it's different than intelligent design which deval just basically considers regular creationism under a scientific disguise but uh so if if you're not familiar creationism is just opposition to historical science to evolution to geology and all that stuff it's the idea that the earth was created you know six thousand years ago or ten thousand years ago or actually I guess there are now also old earth creationists who think that the earth is uh you know uh billions of years old but that humans were created in some recent
1: time frame hmm. I always thought it was only a hundred years old <laughs> i mean were you there no, I was there a hundred years ago it was a I was a different life right mm-hmm. I was actually Charles Darwin. Oh you were. Yeah. Weird.
0: Charles Darwin was
1: not here 100 years ago, but <laughs> it's a little little known fact that Charles Darwin actually faked his own death and was me.
0: I don't know where you're going with this, but it's good. I don't know either. Okay. Um but yeah, so what does he mean by neo-creationism? Well, this is within this mindset that he's attacking of human uniqueness. So A neo-creationist, according to Duvall, would probably nominally accept evolution as the biological mechanism for creating all life, including humans, including human bodies. But implicitly, sort of under the table, it rejects evolution as the mechanism for creating human minds. In other words, it's this implicit kind of hidden belief. They wouldn't say this out loud, but they act as if they believe that evolution stops at the human head. Mm. You know, so they would say like, well, you know, of course evolution has created all life on earth but you know we will just never see that animals have the kinds of mental capacities that humans do they're in a totally different uh category you know a, a chimpanzee could never hope to come close to the mind of a human uh one example that Duvall gives in his book is the primatologist Mark Hauser, who apparently at some point said there is probably more difference between the human and chimp cognition than, than between chimp and beetle cognition.
1: Interesting. And for Duvall, that is a ridiculous statement. Yeah. So, you know, uh, this is unrelated, but you know what this makes me think of, uh, combining creationism with neo Uh, when I was in Sunday school back in the day, mm-hmm. Uh, I once asked a question, will my pets go to heaven? Oh. Will they be in heaven with me?
0: There's some different
1: theological viewpoints on this. Yeah, and I was, I was heavily reprimanded that of course they would not. Why, why would animals go to heaven? They are not. Uh, and as intelligent they don't have souls like we do uh-huh. uh, so this is
0: the Descartes point of view really right. the animals are automata. Yeah, i didn't
1: know it then i was probably like i don't know six years old or something like uh-huh. that and i was traumatized by the whole idea that like my the the pets that i loved were somehow less than me and this and therefore did not deserve to live for eternity yeah. uh, and i don't know maybe that was the beginning of the end for me when it came to, <laughs> to uh just being active in organized religion well there are different theological views points on this,
0: this mm-hmm. I think uh, the, the uh, I don't know, the insolment of animals or whatever you would call it, right. there, there there, are some things oh, maybe we should do an episode on that sometime that would be kind of cool, animal ensoulment yeah. theology it's,
1: it's oh. sort of tangentially related I'm putting us on a, a little bit of a diversion okay. here, but, but it's sort of the same idea, right?
0: Well, whether you're talking about the religious mindset or even the mindset of many philosophers and scientists who are operating supposedly under secular principles yeah. there is still this strong tendency to say, no, no, no. Humans are unique. There's nothing like us. We are totally different, totally, totally different, and nothing else comes close. This is another one of these ideas that I think uh, Duvall is coming with a sword in both hands at in this right.
1: book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so
0: he actually in the book calls for a moratorium on human uniqueness claims, at least for a few decades, given how miserably these claims he says have performed in the past. So what does he mean by that? Well, he discusses lots of examples of intellectual traits that over the years have been proposed as completely unique to humans. Examples would be all kinds of things: social organization theory of mind. Theory of mind is the idea that you can take the perspective mentally of another person. So when I imagine what Christian could be thinking right now, that's theory of mind. And this
1: heavily plays into what Duvall and others define as sort of the pillars of morality, right? Oh, yeah. And this is one of those pillars.
0: We'll come to that in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, It connects to the idea of empathy, which is uh, perspective taking, putting yourself in somebody else's mindset or their position. Uh, But then another one. Only humans can do mental time travel. Only they can episodically recall the past or think about the future. Uh, Only humans can recognize themselves in a mirror. Only humans can display moral behavior and and treat others with fairness and and mercy. Uh, And in each case, observation of animal behavior followed by controlled experiments has really started to undermine and i would say in some cases completely demolish the idea that these traits are totally unique to humans and not found in any other animal
1: yeah one of the examples he gives in the book which i i I slightly referenced in our previous episode was the idea that animals couldn't possibly say goodbye to one another. And yet he has observed in experimental conditions that chimpanzees in fact do go around and say goodbye to one another in their own way from within their social group before they know when they know they're leaving the, uh the like compound that they're in.
0: Yeah. And we can talk about a few more examples of, of these different types of animal intelligence, but I do want to come back and say, I don't get the sense in the book that he said he totally rejects the possibility that humans are unique in any way. For example, the one thing he does seem to suggest might be unique about humans, so we don't really know for sure yet, might be unique is language. Language might be right. the magic well of humanity like, you know, many other – uh, animals have peaks of specialization that are unique to them. Maybe the one thing that might set us apart is our flexible use of syntax, you know, flexible syntax that's symbolic and communicates all different kinds of things. Yeah. We don't really see anything like this in other animals. There are signals and calls and basic communications, but nothing that we've detected yet that's, that's like
1: a, human language. That's a whole nother episode. That could be something that we could do as well. But yeah, the, the, um, definition of language in human communication when you then apply it to various animals mm-hmm. there are certain ground rules yeah. essentially that they have yet to show us that they've achieved
0: but uh i think we should learn from all of these other examples of things we used to say were definitely unique to yeah. humans and then we found out maybe mm-hmm. not so much we should be cautious about saying this about language we might find out differently
1: yeah i agree uh and, and the other thing i would say here too is that you know uh deval uh, would say, I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but would probably say, yes, humans are unique, but so are every other species. That's sort of right. the point of his approach to the discipline.
0: Right. It's almost like, why would you say non-human animals and say, uh, instead of saying uh, non-octopus animals? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. That Like, each species brings its own unique... Umwelt. Uh, Umwelt. Yeah, Umfeld, the, yeah. The, the context to the situation. And therefore, we have something different to learn from all of them. That's what he refers to as the magic well. Yeah, so there's
0: one quote I want to read from the book that I think sort of encapsulates the the thinking behind this big idea in the book of going against human uniqueness claims, the idea that humans are, you know, a, a leap or a gap above all other animals. And uh, And the section goes like this, quote, If cognition's basic features derive from gradual descent with modification, so he's saying if we evolved our brains, then notions of leaps, bounds, and sparks are out of order. Instead of a gap, we face a gently sloping beach created by the steady pounding of millions of waves. Even if human intellect is higher up on the beach, it was shaped by the same forces battering the same shore. I found that passage both beautiful and I think I I very much agree with it. Uh, I mean, it may be true that we're much higher up on the shore. I guess it's up for debate how much higher along the shore we're on, but it's not the case that we're on a different (laughs) landmass. Right. You you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to look at some examples of these animals using intelligence and cognition. Okay, so we're back. So, what are some really good examples? We already talked about uh, the the combination of mental time travel and chimpanzees having the ability to say goodbye. Yeah, but what what else? What else have we seen?
0: Well, I mean, so mental time travel is something that y- you tend to assume is only a human trait, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it you think of animals as existing. In terms of what's in front of them, what's going on right now? What are my needs right now? And a dog can beg for a treat in anticipation of a treat. So that is some future oriented behavior, but it's begging because it's hungry now. Right. Could a dog plan for something it wanted to do tomorrow? That's the question. Can Mm. can dogs think about the future in a distant way and make plans that are not related to their current needs? Not just dogs, obviously, any animals. Yeah. Uh, And can they remember episodes from their past that are not currently relevant to what's going on to them?
1: This is completely anecdotal, and I don't know whether or not it backs up anything, but here's what I think of when you say that. One of my dogs is a rescue and we had a little bit of difficulty potty training her, getting her to go outside because Mm. uh, in her, you know, whatever situation she was in before we had her, she was clearly going to the bathroom either on concrete or indoors. Um, And so, Uh, it's interesting when I let her outside and I, you know, she's, she's gotten to the point now where she knows going outside means going to the bathroom, get Mm -hmm. my business done so that when I'm inside, I don't have to worry about that. Right. But I see her sometimes, think, especially at night, right before we go to bed, she knows she's going to be in the house for an extended period of time. I, I see what I think. What I think is her making a choice and saying, do I really need to go to the bathroom that bad right now? Or do I want to just stay inside and I'll deal with it tomorrow? Yeah. I don't know. Is, that, is that? I
0: feel like I see Charlie doing that same thing. Now yeah. that may just be me, the dog owner projecting. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, I see like sometimes I feel like he's working out the pros and cons of future behavior.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. She's like, do I want to be inside and warm right now and in my bed or do I want to go outside and, and, you know, walk around in the dark for five minutes and go to the bathroom? Do I have to go that bad? Mm. Now, that's what it seems like to me. Who knows what's actually going on inside your head?
0: Now, maybe you could actually come up with some kind of test condition to try to tug at these variables and see if you could isolate it. It's possible. I don't know. Mm. Uh, This is what a lot of these scientists do, you know, evolutionary uh, people working in evolutionary cognition. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever the title for that is. We'll have to ask. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, um, they uh, you know they have to come up with experiments to try to isolate these uh, situations and see what can what can we bring out what can we tug on yeah uh, and so one interesting example that gets cited in the book there are tons of examples and you know we we can't cover everything in the book right? we, we also we want to just I would leave encourage you to, you to read, read the book, the
1: book. Yeah. yeah and in fact there's so many examples in them there's no way that we could do it justice. Right. Without just reading the book out loud, do you?
0: Right. But here's one really interesting one dealing with episodic memory in animals. So Duvall cites research by people named Nikki Clayton and Anthony Dickinson doing experiments with Western scrub jays. These are birds, okay? Now, Robert and I actually in the past have already done an episode on bird intelligence. Right. And corvids in particular, all, actually many birds, but especially birds like uh, corvids and satasiforms have displayed some very, very interesting apparent higher order intelligence.
1: Yeah, I thought of you guys as I was reading the book because he talks about uh that example with I want to say it was crows, where they would put uh masks on various people to see if the crows would recognize the masks rather than the actual human faces. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Do you remember that? Uh I don't know if that was crows. There's definitely some kind of Corvid. Yeah. Uh so members of the the, the Corvid family um so family or group, I don't know, members of the, the Corvid group of animals, <laughs> mm-hmm. including like crows, ravens, magpies, jays. Yeah. Um, the, uh, these animals are, th- they often display very strikingly intelligent behaviors, stuff that we would not expect at all. And I want to talk more about one, uh, with regard to tool use, for example. Uh, but yeah, so scrub jays, they, there seems to be evidence based on this research that they are able to remember what items they have put where and at what time. Mm. So not just, you can imagine instinctual behavior just leading a, a, a Jay to hide a piece of food somewhere and then come back to it later. But can they make decisions based on how long that piece of food has been there and what type of piece of food it was? This this study does seem to indicate that might possibly be happening. So they got to hide different food items, peanuts and waxworms. The Jays love (laughs) waxworms. The waxworms are much preferred to the peanuts. Okay. So four hours after hiding this stuff, they went back to find the food, and they looked for the worms first. That makes sense. They like their
1: they like this food better. Yeah. So wax the, worms probably go bad quicker than peanuts too.
0: What do you know? I mean, this is actually what the study plays on. So four hours after hiding, they go back for the worms first, but five days later, if they get to go back and look for these pieces of food they hid. They look for the nuts first. Uh, presumably, in the understanding that worms spoil over the course of several days. Now, there wow. could be other stuff going on. That yeah. This is, you know, it's not total proof, but that's a very interesting result.
1: That's crazy if yeah. that's the case. And yeah. uh, and they determine I'm that, not even like g- good enough at that. I go into the fridge and my bread's got mold on it. Uh, I'll eat it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have to make, I, I bargain with myself whether or not it's worth right. it.
0: <laughs> I can't remember when we
1: ordered this Chinese food. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But these corvids, man, they've got a leg up on us. Uh,
0: but so another thing that uh, that Duvall reports is that apparently odor was not a factor in this. They didn't just sniff it out because the food had actually been removed. They're looking where they remembered putting the nuts. Uh, so I, I don't know. That's really interesting. And th- there are plenty of other studies he talks about with different types of mental, apparent mental time travel going on in animals. One of the examples that Duvall talks about in his book is the idea of a uh, of a primate taking a bunch of straw from its indoor enclosure to the outside at a time when it didn't have to be outside yeah it was planning ahead of time the straw can keep it warm it can make a little straw nest outside but it wasn't it didn't need it at that moment it's the equivalent of like knowing that you would need to uh be in the bedroom you know In the future, tomorrow or something like that, and taking a blanket in there and leaving it there for when you come back.
1: Yeah. And if I remember correctly, I think it should be noted that this primate had a baby, didn't it? Yeah. And that was part of it. I think it was Was a chimpanzee. Yeah. And so it was planning ahead of time not just for itself, but for its young. Yeah. So
0: that's just a couple of interesting examples of mental time travel. There are tons more cited in the book um that that are evidence of both episodic memory in animals and animal remembering what happened where and at what time in the past and animals planning for the future in some kind of interesting or complex way. Uh, another obvious one that people used to say, you know, what is man? Man is the tool to using animal. <laughs> Animals Was that use Dr. Zayas super said that? No. No, uh Dr. Zayas did not have that much respect for man. Right. Man is a brute. What did he say? Dr. Zayas, Dr.
1: Zayas. That's exactly what's going through my head. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um so yeah, so another one would be tool use. So it yeah. used to be assumed that, well, one thing that's really unique about humans is that they make tools. This is just – this has exploded now. Well, they, just this last is,
1: episode, episode I uh, pointed out that we've got crabs that use anemones as tools. We have a whole episode about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: so it's crazy. Like this is one of those where I don't think it's debatable. Yeah. It's not like – some people might argue with the mental time travel results and say, I don't know about these. You might be interpreting them wrong. Okay, maybe. Uh, not so with tool use, I mean, Animals obviously use tools. Chimpanzees use stones to crack nuts, to get into nuts they couldn't otherwise use. Uh, sometimes they show very complex behaviors with regard to how they gather these stones and nuts. Like, uh, there's one anecdote in the book about a chimpanzee in the wild. Uh, I believe it was either chimpanzee or bonobo, but I think it was a chimpanzee who was carrying a large stone f- across a great distance and like routed Went on a route to pick up some nuts on the way while carrying the stone yeah. to the place where the big flat stone was where you could pound the nuts with the stone she was carrying. I mean, that just sounds like obvious uh Tool use to me.
1: Yeah, he has a really good example of this uh, in the book. Gibbons were apparently originally thought of as being unintelligent because they wouldn't use tools like sticks when they were placed on the floor. Now this is where the umwelt, the context of a gibbon's life, comes into play. Right. Well, gibbons' hands are different from other primates. They right. have really long fingers because they swing from branches and and uh, other objects. Yeah, right? it's
0: called brachiation. They're they're not they're not manipulated. Manipulators to the same extent that, like chimpanzees and humans, are they're they're swingers.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So what they found was. Sure, if you put the sticks on the ground, they won't pick them up because their hands aren't made to pick things up off the ground. But if you suspend the sticks, they will easily grab them and use them. Yeah. So it's it's just a matter of knowing about the species before you start conducting these experiments. Yeah,
0: it's the umwelt again. It's the, uh, it's the idea that if you don't understand the animal, you're very likely missing something crucial when you're testing its intelligence. Yeah.
1: Likewise, they did the same thing with elephants. They put sticks on the ground. They wanted to see if elephants would use these sticks. It turned out the elephants wouldn't use sticks as tools because they pick things up with their trunk, and when they're picking up these sticks, the sticks were big enough that they're blocking their nasal passages. Uh So, of course, they wouldn't want to use that because their nasal passage is hugely important to them in surviving in the context that they live in. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: There's another really interesting thing about corvids, again, in tool use. I mean, Robert and I talked about this in our episode about bird intelligence, but... Corvids have been seen not just to use tools, so crows, you know, corvids, they will not just get a hook and use it, use the hook to retrieve a piece of meat in a bucket out of a tube, they will do that, but they'll also make a hook. So they'll take a straight piece of wire and bend the end of it into a hook shape. Uh, which that, that's a type of meta tool use. That's a metacognition of understanding what type of tool you need to use and then building the tool.
1: Now I'm like imagining this horror movie yeah. of, uh, Corvids using hooks to kill people. Yeah. But like, it, like maybe that's what, uh, what is it? bird Birdemic. Maybe that's demic 3 <laughs> or something like that. But, but like, uh, you remember that, like the, the, the old, like, uh, urban myth, I guess it is the hook that's like often used as like a uh, a story to begin horror stories with the idea that like there's a prisoner on the loose and he's right. got a hook for a hand and like right. the the couple's like making out in a car or something they hear this on the radio and the, the the male goes out looking to see about a noise and then when the the female exits the car all she sees is a hook hanging like scraping against the top of the car hanging over the car right i think you may it the whole time
0: frankenstein that together from some parts of different things yeah.
1: but yeah my version Okay. My version is going to be that it was actually birds the right. whole time. There was, was a no corded prisoner. hook. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, to me, that is very interesting uh, yeah. type of intelligence. I think that was Betty the Crow who did that. <laughs> the Betty thing- the Crow bending the hooks. <laughs> But, uh, a, another interesting one is, uh, the, the pitcher experiments. You remember about these where there would be like a pitcher of water and a piece of food floating in it.
1: Oh, yeah. Do right.
0: animals understand that they can displace water by dropping stones right. into the water to float the food up to where they can reach it? Yeah. Uh, and so there have been some experiments where crows, uh, did show this. They, they could displace water, but, uh Duvall does add a little caveat to that. He says, you know, they had some kinds of pre-training and like the tools were right there available to them. He, he's even more proud of chimpanzees in water displacement tasks where there's a thing floating that they need to get in a narrow container and they add water to the container to float it up to where they can reach it. Even – Mentions that one female chimpanzee when, uh, that he was working with when trying to, uh, do this, this picture experiment tried to pee into the tube. Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I guess whatever works, works. Uh, you know, the other thing about elephants is that people, scientists at first thought that they couldn't recognize themselves in mirrors. Do you know why? Because they were giving them little teeny tiny human handheld mirrors to try to recognize <laughs> themselves in. Uh, and so, The elephants could like, basically all they would see if they could even see into it at all was like their leg. Right, Like the entire like side of their leg. So uh, scientists thought, well, clearly they can't recognize themselves then. Then actually one of, I think it's De- one of Deval's students uh, came up with this idea. He put like, I think there are eight foot by eight foot mirrors in a uh, an enclosure with an elephant. Yeah,
0: bigger and, mirrors. Yeah.
1: Bigger mirrors for bigger animals. Duh. Uh-huh. And bingo, the elephants like demonstrated the ability to recognize themselves.
0: This is yet another one of these things that's cited in the book as an example of something people used to say only humans can you know have self-awareness uh they can recognize themselves in mirrors now there are more studies seeming to show and some of the results again you might question them you might say i'm not sure what's really going on here that's fair to question them but there are plenty of results appearing to show animals recognize themselves in mirrors now that's limited to a smaller subset of animals uh but uh, like it's only some of the great apes and maybe the magpie eurasian magpie um but but they are very interesting It's like where you will put a mark on a place on the animal where the animal can't see it themselves yeah, yeah. and uh, then let them look at themselves in the mirror. Do they they try to investigate this mark or are they just uninterested? Do they get that it's them they're looking at in the mirror? And there's actually a much simpler version of this experiment. It's not even an experiment. It's just something people observed about, for example, chimpanzees and elephants in the presence of mirrors is... They'd look at their mouths, right? They'd like open their mouth and look inside it in the mirror. I mean, that that's almost like you don't even have to do the experiment. You can tell that they they know that the mirror is giving them visual access to something they could never
1: see otherwise. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I haven't read this study, but I believe Duvall won an egg Nobel Prize for a study like this. Yeah, he did. Which involved chimpanzees looking at their own behinds with a mirror uh well he did talk about chimpanzees looking at their own behinds in mirrors
0: but i think the study was actually about uh chimpanzees recognizing one another
1: or some type of primate i think it
0: was chimpanzees but it was some type of primate could recognize one another from their butts yeah
1: Okay. So anyways, as many of you out there know, we cover the Ig Nobel's every year. And Uh there's a, a, you know, usually a good dozen or so uh, funny, but illuminating studies that are represented there. And this was one of them from 2012 is when I think he got the award. Yeah. Uh, other
0: big things he talks about in the book that, uh, that maybe we won't even address now, but th- their ideas about theory of mind. Can animals, um, can animals take the perspective of another animal? And there's tons of interesting research on that. The answer seems to me, I'm fairly convinced many animals. Yes, they can. Mm. Uh, they can take the perspective of another. They can imagine what somebody else is thinking, understand what they see. Uh, a social organization. There's all kinds of stuff. About primate hierarchies, uh, things about uh, moral behavior. This is a big one.
1: Yeah. Actually, why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we'll talk about examples of animal morality. okay, we're back. So this is actually a lot of the case studies that we presented before were from other researchers. Duval's main area is looking at animal morality. Like animal empathy. yeah. Yeah. And so his own work looks at this a lot with chimpanzees. And for instance, his work looks at how they reconcile with one another after conflict. Apparently bonobos actually value their relationships with one another and they see reconciliation as something that they need to do to maintain those relationships. Mm-hmm. He defines, and we, we hinted at this at the beginning of the episode.
0: Actually, we should just mention he has a really good and succinct Ted talk about this. Yes, that You can check out if he does. you
1: want. Yeah. It's wonderful. Um, But he he basically looks at the essential pillars of morality as they stand with us as human beings, right? And he defines it – Uh, there's a a drawing of literal, like, Greek, (laughs) Greek pillars. Uh One is reciprocity and fairness. Yeah. And the other is empathy and compassion.
0: Right. And so he's not saying that all of what morality is, is defined by these two pillars, but I think he's saying that these two pillars are essential,
1: right? Yeah. They're the building blocks.
0: Yeah. So fairness and compassion or reciprocity and empathy, he used them sort of interchangeably. Um, they're not, All of what morality is, there's more to morality, but they're the necessary components of a morality. You can't have a morality without them.
1: So an example that he uses is he says that they showed chimps that even if one chimp wasn't hungry – but another one was hungry they would work together to help each other get the food
0: yeah this is a classic the rope pulling in tandem test exactly uh,
1: yeah and basically like he shows a video of this that like the one chimp w- that isn't that hungry will kind of stop halfway through and the hungry chimp will pat it on the back well, kind of getting its attention well we should describe the test a little yeah, bit yeah let's do that so there's a two chimps behind bars yeah prisoners
0: yeah uh, and they they have access to ropes and these ropes are attached to a box that is too heavy for one chimp to pull by themselves. Right, But two chimps together can move the box and the box has some food sitting on it. So obviously they want to get it closer to the bar so they can get the food. Uh, Now, if they work together, they can they can get the box there. And if they're both hungry, there's no problem here. They'll cooperate. They'll get the thing there and they'll both take their food from the box. Yeah. But as you were saying, what if one of the chimps isn't hungry? What if it just ate? to its fill, Mm -hmm. will it still help? The answer is it it doesn't necessarily naturally, but if the other chimp sort of encourages it to help, it will.
1: Yeah, pats it on the back and basically says, hey, give me a hand here. It'll help. Pull pull the box forward. And even in the example, the hungry chimp eats all of the food. Yeah, Uh, I think the
0: the full chimp took like one little piece. Maybe,
1: yeah. (laughs) So in these examples, Duvall defines empathy as having two channels. There's the body channel, and that's where we, or animals maybe, adopt the body language of another person's emotions. And he says, this is why we keep mammals in our homes, right? This is why we love cats and dogs as pets. Yeah. Because they have this kind of empathy, right? Right. If you're happy, your dog will, I don't know about you, but my dog gets you know what looks like a smile on his face. He'll start panting and jumping around, something like that, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yawn contagion is a really good example of this. Like, oh man, I yawn, Joe might yawn, or me even saying yawning, or like we actually did a whole episode uh, about yawning and dogs uh, on our other show, Brain Stuff. I think they do. I feel like Charlie catches my yawns. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, totally possible. Dogs yawn for a lot of reasons, so not just contagion, but yeah. Um, so that's an example that we you know pick up on visual cues from other human beings, but also animals pick them up from us or other animals as well. And that's part of their empathy. The second channel is the cognitive channel. And this is where you can take the perspective of somebody else.
0: Right. You imagine what it's like to be them.
1: So there's another study that he did on altruism with chimpanzees. And basically the question they were getting at here was, do these chimps care about the welfare of other chimpanzees? Right. Well, they go out of their way to, or
0: even not all that far out of their way. Well, they do something to make sure another chimpanzee gets a piece of food if it has no impact on them.
1: Yeah. Uh, the way that they did this was they, they they put tokens in the cage with the chimpanzees. And I think like red ch- a red token is the selfish token and a green token is the pro-social token.
0: Right. So if you give the caretaker a red token, you get a piece of food for yourself. Yeah. If you give them a green token, you get a piece of food and another chimp gets a piece of food. Exactly.
1: Either way, you get the food. But if you do the green token, everybody gets food. They found that the chimps choose the pro-social token more often. Yeah. Unless there's a situation between them that involves reciprocity. If there's like, if they, uh, they have some sort of situation where they've got got to fight earlier (laughs) or something like that, then they'll, they'll, choose the selfish tokens. This is pretty interesting. Uh, They also conducted a fairness study where they created inequity between monkeys by giving some cucumbers and some grapes. Now, what we need to define here is uh, Duvall actually says he just thinks of cucumbers as being mostly water.
0: Right. Uh, uh obviously the monkeys like the grapes way more than yeah. the cucumbers, but they're perfectly fine getting a cucumber
1: as a reward as yeah. long as it's equal. But if they're in cages next to one another, you get one monkey. And you only give it cucumbers. And if, if you get, start giving grapes to the other monkey, the cucumber monkey gets upset. They freak out. Yeah. And he, it, it, he, you They'll know, throw, literally the throw the cucumber back at the, uh, the handler, I guess, right? Uh. Demanding a grape. Uh, and Duvall says this is basically the primate version of the Wall Street protests. I think this talk was in 2012. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, and he describes going back to the conflict that we described in the previous episode. This is a study that they received a lot of flack for, uh, trying to apply the idea of fairness to primates really angered a lot of scholars in various disciplines, including economics.
0: Uh, yeah, well, well, I mean, I think the idea is that in economics, there's this idea of rationality, you know, that people rationally maximize their own benefit, um, you know, the, they'll naturally go for the option that makes the most sense and the most benefit to them. And it doesn't make sense to refuse a small reward. E- even if you just get a cucumber, you should accept it. You shouldn't throw it in the face of the person who gave it to you yeah. uh, because you didn't get the thing that somebody else got. <laughs> but that's just not what monkeys are like.
1: I got to say, after uh reading his work and watching these videos and just being kind of immersed in this stuff, it's interesting how much of primate behavior i'm noticing in myself and in other human <laughs> beings around me uh like as i'm just going about my day to day now
0: christian here's the crucial question yeah are you more of a chimpanzee or more of a bonobo
1: Hmm, i'm probably more of a bonobo uh, and i'll tell you why uh, because I think bonobos play better into devolved idea of uh, what he calls evolved morality. Okay. Hmm. And this is something, you know what? I'm going to just say it. I'd like to see a little bit more often for my fellow human beings. <laughs> uh, so he says, this is a combination of empathy and consolation, pro social tendencies and reciprocity and fairness. Okay. And he says morality is obviously more than what he's talking about here, but it would be impossible without these ingredients. These just very basic ingredients uh-huh. is what Leads us to our mor- what quote unquote morality that we use to sort of yeah. lead our everyday social lives. Yeah, and
0: disconnected from the main book we've been talking about in these two episodes and this TED talk and and the, the stuff we've addressed. He's written whole books on animal morality. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: All right, so that wraps up our discussion, but we got a chance to talk to Dr. Duvall, um, and so this is our conversation with him. Dr. Duvall, could you introduce yourself? Let us know who you are and and a little bit about your background.
2: I'm a biologist, uh, but I teach uh, at Emory University in the psychology department. I also work at the Yerkes Primate Center, which is a very big primate center that we have here in Atlanta. And um, my origin is I'm from the Netherlands, um, but I came already more than... 30 years ago I'm a legal immigrant uh, more than 30 years ago uh, to the US and uh, I live and work here
1: I saw that you actually you just got your citizenship a couple of years ago yeah congratulations <laughs> thank you
2: uh So in
0: the episode, Christian and I already discussed a few examples of uh animal cognitive capacities that you cite in the book. For example, we talked a little bit about the cooperative rope pulling experiments uh, and, uh, for example, about some apparent examples of mental time travel. But I thought one good way to start off our conversation might be to just ask you for your subjective impression of some of the most striking examples of apparent, of apparent animal cognition uh, that you've witnessed over the years what sticks out in your mind the most
2: yeah, I think the, there's many discoveries recently, for example, the tool used by crows is a very remarkable and, and it's not just that they use tools, the, the crows make tools, so they transform things to make it more suitable as a tool. You have the studies of mirror self-recognition, which I always find fascinating. You have the studies of thinking forward and thinking backwards, so they do experiments with apes, for example, where you you give them a tool that they cannot use immediately. They can only use it the next morning to get food. And, and so then you wonder, will they hang on to the tool? Will they keep it with them? Because they know that they're going to use it the next day. So they're kind of planning studies that are being done and, and that kind of things is also being done in the field with field workers following apes around and see if they collect their tools long before they start using them, which they actually do. And, and so I think there's an enormous range of studies that have to do with um, planning and self-awareness and so on and, and and some of these studies they get actually quite close to what you could call consciousness even though no one knows exactly what consciousness is um uh, it, it, there's a lot of things that that the animals do that we cannot do without being conscious of it and so we wonder if maybe the animals are conscious also interesting
0: is so is a follow up from that um Do do you think that consciousness is likely to be closely associated with the idea of mental time travel, that if you don't just exist in the here and now, but you're able to think about the future and think about the past, do you think that that's crucial to the idea of consciousness?
2: I think it's one way it can manifest itself. So, for example, they do studies here also at Emory. We do studies on metacognition. Do you know what you know? So you can set up an experiment with monkeys, for example, where they can choose one option that they have learned the solution to and another option where they are not sure if they know the solution. And so you can see, do they know what kind of knowledge they have acquired? It's called metacognition, and we humans, we really cannot do that without being conscious of the whole process and of our knowledge. And so then people wonder, uh, is a monkey capable, because the monkeys are capable of doing this, is, is, are they capable of doing that without consciousness, or they do it in exactly the same way as we? And uh, so that's the sort of uh, the issues that people address, and it's not just in relation to time travel, I think it's in relation to all sorts of capacities.
0: Interesting, so the idea you're talking about there would be that, like, if you're able to uh, judge your own confidence in how well you know something, that shows that you must be able to think about your own thoughts.
1: Yeah.
2: So, for example, if I if I ask in my class here at Emory, uh, who knows uh, who knows the answer to this, and, and the, there's five hands going up. So there's going to be five people who have some confidence that they know the answer to a question, which means that they have knowledge of their own knowledge. And, um yeah, for us that's very hard to do without being conscious of, of the process. And so we think that uh, some animals have that capacity too.
0: Interesting. So one more thing I wanted to ask you about was um – um in the book, you discuss how we keep finding interesting clues of intelligent cognition in animals that are more and more uh, separate from us phylogenetically. They're separated from us by more and more years of divergent evolution. And then you make a prediction. You say in the book, quote, Every cognitive capacity that we discover is going to be older and more widespread than we initially thought. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what this prediction means and what, what justifies your thinking on this subject?
2: Well, this is something that that has happened all the time and so and so, for example, with tool use, it's maybe the the clearest example is that we initially started testing tools with the apes, and the apes are very good with the tools and and since we are we humans are very good with tools also we're very impressed we we're most impressed by capacities that relate to what we can do and so the apes they not only make tools they plan tools and and so on uh but then very soon thereafter. We got these studies on, um, other species, like the birds. So, so, so first came the monkeys. The monkeys are different from, from apes, as you may know. Monkeys have tails and are smaller. So, so, capuchin monkeys in the, capuchin monkeys in the field, they were using stones to crack nuts, which no one had expected them to do. But they were doing that, and, and they have been tested in captivity also. And then came the, the New Caledonian crows. Who who um, modify branches to make them more suitable to extract grubs from crevices, and so they they not just use tools these crows they make tools and they started testing the crows on all sorts of other things in the lab, and and the crows have a lot of the same capacities as the apes do. Then we got tool use in the octopus. <laughs> octopus movies. If you look them up, you see them using coconut shells to help hide in. We got a recently a finding of uh, alligators using tools. So the alligators, they live near uh, heron colonies and the herons for their nests. They need branches and They scoop up these branches, and sometimes a branch may be sitting on an alligator, and uh, that's the moment that the alligator can maybe grab the heron and eat it. And so what they found is that some alligators, they were bringing branches from distances to the pond, um, probably in order to lure um, herons close to them. And so, so now we have tool use in so many different species. Uh, And so uh, this has happened all all the time. It has happened with mirror self-recognition. It has happened with these time travel studies that we talked about. Um, It's almost anything you can think of. It's first usually discovered in the apes. And then we move to the dogs and to the dolphins and to the birds. and, And it turns out that the capacity is probably present in many of them.
1: So, I have a follow up on this, uh, from a recent study that we actually did an episode on, and I'm curious if you've heard about this, p- the pom pom crab or the boxer crab and how it uses sea anemones as tools. Oh, uh, yeah. Have you heard about this, this study? <laughs> no, no. So uh, So it's a sort of cheerleading type. Yeah, exactly. So so real quick summary of it. They hold uh, anemones in each of their claws, and they're able to use the anemones to scoop up food and bring the food to their mouths. But the most recent study, and this is where it gets really crazy, is that uh, if they only have one anemone, they will rip it in half in just the right way to cause it to reproduce and clone itself so they have two of them. So we did a whole episode on this study, and i was just curious. You know, maybe you don't have you know a strong opinion on it since you just heard about it. But do you think it's possible that this is a case of cognitive tool use, or do you think maybe it's just like an invertebrate instinct that these crabs are performing with these anemones?
2: No, it it sounds like tool use. Of course, with tools, we usually say that an animal uses an inanimate object to do something. Right. (laughs) In this case, they're using another animal. To do something with, uh, but it is an extension of their body, and that's in the sense of tool use. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah it's pretty fascinating. I recommend you check it out. Um, so, I, I have a question, just like pulling out and and let's look at the sort of broad discipline in academics of these studies. How do you think? we're going to look back on studies of animal intelligence in 150 years. Are we going to regard today's methodologies with the same sort of predominant view that we currently look at past research? Or do you think that we've come to a point where current research is now going to be a stepping stone towards a better understanding of animal intelligence?
2: Yeah, I think 150 years from now, we probably know a lot more about uh, the neuroscience behind all of this. But at the moment, um, the neuroscientists, they have still very simplistic views of animals and they test animals in very simplistic ways like activity levels or do they do behavior A or behavior B. Um, and so the, the neuroscientists need to learn more about animal intelligence and, and animal behavior. And then they can maybe help us uh, solve the issue of what, what, what makes the crows use tools in the same way as that the apes use tools is do they have similar areas in the brain that are similarly specialized or uh, do they have ways of solving this problem in a totally different way than the apes do? And so we don't know that actually. So, so we usually assume that if related species, like let's say you use a tool and I, I use a tool and, and the chimpanzee uses a tool, we assume that we are using the brain in the same way to do these. To solve these issues. But when it comes to birds or other species, we don't know that. And so I think the neuroscientists are going to help us uh, clarify what is going on in the brain when, when these problems are being solved. And yes, we will then look at 150 years from now, we will look at what we do now as interesting pioneering stuff, but without knowing the mechanisms behind it, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so we, we are in a different phase now because in the last century, we were not even allowed to talk about animal intelligence and animal cognition. We can only talk about instincts or simple learning processes. We were not allowed to use the word cognition for animals. And so that has all changed. We we now have a a whole new generation of scientists who are much less reluctant and who uses this kind of terminology. Yeah, we
0: might have some questions for you about uh, the influence of ethology and behaviorism uh, in a little bit. But I wanted to ask a question first. So you talk in the book, uh, and I really like this point you made about uh, our tendency to want to look at an animal behavior and then say, what does that mean for us? What does that mean about uh, what it's like to be human? And I think you sort of discourage that view. But I, I, I'm I, sorry, I, I do want to ask a question about that anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, I, I wonder what you think about the legitimacy of drawing conclusions about human evolution by studying the behavior of existing other primates today. For example, just one thing that I've read about is the work of a couple of primatologists who study savanna chimpanzees in Senegal, and specifically how these chimpanzees behave in the presence of wildfire, like uh, how, how much they seem to understand fire and to predict its movements. And in this particular case, I guess the question would be, can we use these observations about savanna chimpanzees to generate anything useful for theories about how our ancestors might have behaved in the presence of fire before we were, were before we were able to use fire as a tool or is this a misapplication of these observations about other primates?
2: Well, it's an interesting uh, example that you give because I remember a book by an anthropologist of maybe 30 years ago who who claimed that fire and our control over fire is what made us human and that's how, where everything got started and other animals are afraid of fire or they get burned in the fire but we brought it under control and look at how important that was. And then, of course, we had, <laughs> uh, we had here in Atlanta, we had Kanzi, the bonobo, who would roast marshmallows in a fire and would uh, poke the fire and was not afraid of fire at all, uh, which was the first indicator that actually uh, fear of fire is not necessarily inborn and can be overcome. And now we have these observations of chimps using fire for their own advantages. They're not making a fire and they're not uh, having a fire fireplace or something but they wait for a spontaneous fire and they're not afraid of it and they use it for their own purposes uh, and they know how to step around it and so on Uh, and i think what it what it it is interesting to see that kind of things because it it debunks certain arguments there's always these claims of human uniqueness that are always going around only humans can do this only humans can do that and we primatologists were always happy to show that uh, these claims are wrong because (laughs) we feel that we are primates and and we are not fundamentally different from other primates and and this confirms that kind of idea.
1: So I have a question for you uh, that it's a it's slightly political and after reading some some interviews with you previously I I I've gotten the impression that you have applied your previous work to politics. So your research has mainly focused on empathy and animal cognition, and I'd love to hear your perspective on how empathy, morality, and reciprocity are playing out on a larger scale with human beings in our current climate in the United States. Now, you've mentioned before that a lot of human politics mirror primate politics. I'm specifically thinking of what you call the cognitive channel of empathy. And how are, how are we currently at taking the perspective of somebody else?
2: Yeah, I think empathy remains a very important capacity, even though we we now have certain scientists who say empathy is not what's going to solve the problems in the world, which is probably true. But, um, for example, the abolishment of slavery in this country was, was partly an act of empathy. Uh, Abraham Lincoln literally said that he was bothered by seeing slaves in chains. And, and so that's an empathic reaction. And I think empathy is always sort of in the background of all the debates, the political debates. Even the debate about healthcare, for example, do we care about the health of others, even people who cannot really pay for the healthcare that we need to provide? Um, that's a, that's a question of empathy, also. Mm-hmm. So, so and 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 for example, a reaction now to the immigration crisis is also we empathize with people who want to come in, and so on. So there's always empathy is always in the background of these debates. They're not going to provide the final solution necessarily on on how we should handle these things. It's not necessarily uh, the only thing that we need to consider, obviously, uh, but it's always part of the debates. And I think there's plenty of empathy to go around. I, I've always felt that in 2008, when we had the financial crisis, that um, all of a sudden empathy became a more important topic. It was almost as if uh, after 2008, we realized that uh, a completely unfettered market mechanism is not going to provide the solution to a society. Society is much more than uh, uh, than market mechanisms. And I think we started to realize that very clearly after 2008, and, and empathy became a major issue and Obama made it a major word that he would use on occasion. Uh, and I think uh, since that time, also science got involved and there's now a lot of neuroscience on empathy and there's my kind of observations of empathy in animals and so on. And I think also the scientists got involved interested in the topic.
0: Yeah, I I have a lot of sympathy for that view. And I I think I can definitely see how uh, what what you call perspective taking is kind of crucial to being able to live as a moral being. You know, you have to understand the suffering of others in order to try to prevent it. Uh, But I I think you alluded to this in your answer. I I was interested to ask you about these uh, scientists you, you, I think, alluded to who are coming out against empathy. The one I know about, for example, is the Yale psychologist Paul Bloom, uh, Mm -hmm. who is arguing that empathy is, in fact, not the best basis for morality, that it can, uh, I think he says it can impair rational thinking because it forces you to sort of be emotional about single cases where, in fact, there are sort of large abstract problems that actually hurt more people, but they're harder to empathize with because you can't picture a single person being hurt by them in, in such an easy way. Um, I, I was just wondering what you thought about that.
2: Yeah, I think... Um uh it is true that empathy is biased so empathy is more for individuals that are close to you and your family members but you know uh, we absolutely need that if let's say i would i would empathize equally with everyone in the world uh, first of all, I would have no life. <laughs> it would be a, a very hard life to have. But also, I, I might neglect my own children, so to speak, which no one wants me to do. And so, uh, the fact that empathy is biased is not a bad thing. That's what evolution designed it for, is to, as a biased system. And what Paul Bloom is sort of doing is throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I think we need absolutely empathy and compassion and, and our whole moral system is based on empathy. But it expands it. That's, tr- that's in that sense, he's correct. You need to expand it. You cannot just stay with that very biased and very parochial mechanism uh, that evolution designed for us. You need to go beyond it. And, And I think we're trying to do that in our moral systems. Absolutely.
0: Maybe we need empathy plus. Sort of the
2: Yeah, so, empathy. for example, we, we empathize with a- animals. And so, for example, the agricultural industry, the way they treat animals, I am very unhappy about that. And um, it, that, that's also an empathy reaction where we say, well, uh, what they're doing is wrong. Um, and that's based on, on my empathy for animals. And so we, we have this kind of expanded capacity, which is not just for our family members and friends. And we're capable of empathizing with individuals who are quite different from us or even different species.
0: So you you mentioned uh, about our treatment of animals. One thing I wonder is if you think that uh, study of animal cognition has moral implications. Like, do we have more moral responsibilities toward animals that show more evidence of cognition? Or does that not really change the picture of how we should treat animals?
2: I think it, I think it has done that. If you look at how we now, for example... Uh, how we look at the killer whales in captivity or dolphins in captivity or elephants in circuses how the circuses are closing as a result of this um, I, and I think this is all under the influence of the sort of science that we do on animal cognition. And in my own career, for example, I I worked on chimpanzees, and uh, chimpanzees are not being used in biomedical studies anymore. NIH has declared them off-limits for that kind of research, which is partly based on the sort of research that we do. And so, yes, it does have moral implications. It's gonna affect even more, I think, the way we treat animals. and uh, in the end the, the big elephant in the room is i think uh, farm animals because the the numbers of animals uh, uh, that are that are used for food are much bigger than all the other numbers taken together so the farm animals uh, are going to be next and i think and, and that's also happening people are getting more worried about how we treat them and what we do with them
1: Along these lines, I'm curious, you know, your most recent book is, is all about the discipline of science and how it understands animal intelligence. And I'm curious where you think that's currently at. You, you describe the two schools of thought in your book that have dominated the last century and more, the influence of behaviorism and ethology. But I'm curious, have they totally given way to evolutionary cognition as you describe it? Or is there, are there some remnants left?
2: No, they're integrated into it. So the, the behaviorists is basically skinnerians. There was a very dominant school here in the U.S. which basically says that everything animals do is learned by simple reward and punishment and conditioning. And um, a lot of animal behavior, of course, is. They they were not wrong on that. A lot of animal behavior is learned. But they tried to reduce everything, and so they didn't allow us to speak of emotions or of cognition. They they didn't like anything that related to the inner life of animals. And then you had the ethologists. I'm trained as an ethologist. Ethologists were more interested in naturalistic behaviour, and so that was more like the instinct side of animals, and uh, was very strongly developed uh, in Europe. And what we have now in this new field of animal cognition or evolutionary cognition, what we have now in that field, is a sort of combination of these two. So we use the experimental techniques of the behaviorists and the skinnerians. We use the observational techniques of the ethologists uh, and the concepts from both of them, and we combine that. But we combine that with a much more open spirit about what animals can do and, and and how they mentally operate. And we're not so reluctant anymore to speak of the emotions of animals or the cognition of animals as we used to be. And so these, these two schools have not disappeared. They, they have sort of been eaten up by the new fields and, and uh, integrated into it.
0: So one subject that you talk about in the book that I found very interesting was this idea, I think, it was, I think you phrased it as critical anthropomorphism, uh, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about this concept, uh, why you prefer it to maybe what you might call, I don't know, more gullible or credulous anthropomorphism, and then this opposite position that you call anthropodenial
2: anthropomorphism uh, is usually what gets thrown at us uh, if we say that animals are for example jealous or they want this or they want that and because intentions and emotions were taboo and so then people would say well you're very anthropomorphic about these animals uh, and uh, i don't necessarily agree with that especially not with the great apes because they they are literally anthropomorphic in the sense that they are like humans uh, and and so to use the same terminology for when chimps kiss and kiss and embrace each other after a fight uh, to call that a reconciliation as i as i have done people would say you have to call that a mouse to mouth kiss post-conflict kiss or something. <laughs> so, so they didn't like the anthropomorphic terminology, even though my assumption is that if if chimps do something similar to us under similar circumstances, you have to give it the same label. So I'm not so afraid of anthropomorphism, but it is true that some people um, who don't know animals very well, they throw labels at them that uh, that we who work with these animals are, are a bit scared of. And so um, if, if, for example, you let's say you go to a show with your dog and and your dog wins the show and you say, my dog is proud, uh, I'm sort of skeptical about that. I'm not sure that the dog has a concept of the show and has a concept of uh, what, we, what we're looking for in the show and <laughs> why he gets the ribbon. I'm not sure that the dog knows all these things. The dog may know that you're giving attention and you're giving goodies. Well, that's something that a dog can understand. So, so we shouldn't exaggerate in our interpretations of animal behavior and people often do that. Uh, but we should certainly uh, be able to use certain concepts, especially things that we have uh, quantified and, and observed frequently and maybe done some experiments on, like reconciliation or cooperation uh, or jealousy or whatever, uh, things that we can test. Uh, we, we certainly should be able to use that kind of terminology.
1: I'd like to hear your perspective on the differences between writing for an academic audience versus writing for a popular one. I especially love that you choose to do your own illustrations in your books. Uh, and you seem to enjoy writing for both audiences. So I'm, I'm curious how you balance that both professionally and creatively.
2: Yeah, you do need to balance it. I, I know, for example, I still know um, Desmond Morris, who was a very popular writer in biology. And um, he he used to be a a scientist, Uh, he he has a PhD in all of this and then he became a popular author. And very soon thereafter, like five years later, people didn't take him seriously anymore. They would say, oh, he's just a popularizer. We don't need to pay attention to him. Uh, He's a vulgarizer and so on. And so I've I've learned a lesson from that, is that if you're gonna popularize, you still need to keep doing your science, otherwise people are not gonna take you seriously anymore. And so I've always had a sort of two-track career. Uh, I I did my science, and I've written many scientific articles, uh, and I did my popular books, which I do usually in the evenings and in the weekends, which is quite separate from my work, Uh, although, all my work is in there, basically. So so I've always done these things sort of separately, and I find writing books is a lot of fun um, because I'm, I'm more free to say what I want to say than in a scientific article where you're very constrained and you stay as close as possible to the data that you have collected, and in a book you can you can dwell to other, you can talk about other topics, you can talk about the politics in Washington if you want, or you can talk about um, morality or religion, uh, and, and so you can you can go far beyond the sort of data that you have collected
0: at the uh, risk of buttering you up too much i I really, really enjoyed your writing style in this book. I think you have a great talent for popular writing, and so i uh, I hope you continue doing it
2: yeah i I write of course, not in my native language, and I always <laughs> think that in a way it's it's a disadvantage because I'm sometimes really jealous if I read, let's say, Robert Sapolsky, who is a primatologist, an American primatologist, and I think, well, if I could write like this, well, I'm very impressed by but, and On the other hand, by being not a native speaker, I simplify things and so so I, I don't make very convoluted, very complex sentences with a lot of alternative words and nets and synonyms and stuff like that because my knowledge is more limited and that makes it maybe for the readers easier because I have shorter sentences and, and easier sentences. Uh,
0: I I just appreciate how clear everything is in the book, uh, how clear it is what you think, how clear uh, the the examples you describe are. So I I think you're doing great work on that front. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Um, I've got another question. So if – and this maybe has a follow-up that's more specific too, but if there's one – specific misconception about animal intelligence that you think is very common and that you could instantly snap your fingers and correct in everybody's minds what what would it be what does everybody get wrong
2: well one common one is that people think that animals live in the present purely and we have now a lot of evidence that they think ahead And not just the apes, but there's rat studies on this kind of things also, that they can think ahead and that they can think back to specific events in the past. So that's one misconception I think that people have. Another one that they have is that everything in nature is cutthroat and is harsh and they have this view of nature as dog-eat-dog. Which which is not completely untrue, of course. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm looking here. I'm, I'm sitting at Emory campus, and I I see the hawks flying by, uh, the red-tailed hawks who are hunting for squirrels. And so, yeah, that is dog eat dog is right there in front of me. Um, but uh, there's also a lot of cooperation in the animal kingdom. There's lots of animals who survive by cooperating, and so they have empathy for each other. They help each other. They are altruistic sometimes. They get things back for it. It's not, you know. Uh, It's just as in human society, we we are often kind to each other, but it's not as if that doesn't pay itself. So so that's how we are set up as a system, and that's how many animals are set up.
0: Uh, As a follow-up to this, your answer to the specific might be the same as your answer to the general, but what do you also think is the most common and pernicious misunderstanding people have about the great apes like chimpanzees and bonobos?
2: Yeah, I think uh, people often um, don't know how close we are to them. So they, they, you know, the first time apes came to the London Zoo, which was in the, in, in the 19th century, uh, people were shocked. They were totally shocked. They saw these apes. And and so they had this feeling. If this is an animal, what what am I? So by seeing the apes, they all of a sudden realized how close they were to them. And we have now. So this has worn off now, and people are sort of maintaining their distance. And when they go to see the gorillas at the zoo in Atlanta, they may laugh at the gorillas um, as if as if they're funny. But um, so so they sort of try to laugh off that close connection that we immediately see, <laughs> but people don't fully realize how close we are to the apes. So for example, the the distance between me and a chimpanzee, in genetic terms, is very similar to the distance between an African and an Asian elephant. The African and Asian elephants are quite different, they're both we call them both elephants, so why don't we call both me and the ape apes? um but we don't do that so so for we make a sort of exception for ourselves, but we are uh, genetically extremely close to the apes. we're basically apes
1: it's It's funny, I have to say, you know, researching your work for the last couple of days the after effect that I took away was how much more I'm noticing primate behavior now in human beings.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, you you comment in the book uh, several times about the way that humans are so often scandalized by realizing how close they are uh, to the other apes. Like There's a story I think you tell about, uh, it might be apocryphal, but the the story about the apes in the London Zoo uh, being very civilized when they consumed tea, and this, this made the crowds very uncomfortable
2: yeah because for for the brits of course drinking tea is the the peak of civilization <laughs> right. right and and so when the the apes at the london zoo got very good at drinking tea and holding the cups and all of that uh, people sort of felt threatened by it and and that's why the london zoo retrained the apes they retrain them to make lots of errors and throw the cups around and break them and stuff <laughs> like that, because that's what people actually wanted to see. Uh-huh. They want to, they want to, to keep keep that distance going. Well,
1: this is my last question for you. Every year on the show, we we cover the Ig Nobel prizes on the podcast. You are our first guest who has actually won the award, and I would love to know what the experience was like. <laughs>
2: Well, do you wanna know what I got it for?
1: Well, we know what you got it for. We and, <laughs> and we did mention it on the podcast, but you should you should go ahead and say that yourself, yeah.
2: Yeah, we, we did a study, we, we've done many studies on face recognition in chimpanzees, so you show, you show them on a computer screen, you show them faces and can they recognize them and can they connect one face with another and so on. And in the process of that, we, we also threw in some behinds of chimpanzees and we found that actually they're very good with behinds as well. And so, mm-hmm. uh, then we, um, we had these, Screens with butts on them and faces on them, and we demonstrated that chimpanzees recognize uh, each other by their butts. Uh, and they can only do this this task with chimps that they know. If, if you do, if you show them, if you show them faces and butts of chimps that they have never seen before, they cannot connect the two. But with the ones that they know, they connect the face with the behind. And and so uh, we wrote a paper, and the title was "Faces and Behinds. And I got an Ig Nobel Prize and went to Harvard to get um, the, the award, which was really uh, it's like a circus there. It's yeah, totally
1: ridiculous. right. We've seen of the and, ceremony, yeah,
2: yeah, and it's, and it's actually actual Nobel Prize winners who hand out the ignoble prize. <laughs> 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 And, and that's also where I met um, I met some fellow uh, awardees and th- these were people who had gotten the prize because they had demonstrated brain activity in a dead fish. I oh. thought this was so great. They had, they had put a dead fish in the brain scanner and with the usual uh, calculations that they made, they demonstrated that there was brain activity, which of course is an impossibility. Uh, so, so they showed that, that what, what we usually do when we calculate activity in the brain, it was actually wrong. So it was a very important paper in a way, uh, but they told me how much trouble they had publishing it because there was a lot of <laughs> resistance to it.
0: I, I think we've actually discussed that paper on the podcast before. I think it was a dead salmon, and the yeah, uh, it, yeah, it yeah, sort of yeah, was yeah. a reductio ad absurdum of some of the fMRI techniques. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for participating. And uh, yeah, like we said, we, we really loved your book. And we recommend that all of you out there listening now uh, go pick up a copy if you can, because I, I think it's, uh, it's great science writing and it's really fascinating.
1: Okay. Thank you. So that ends our two-part series here on animal intelligence and the possibility of morality empathy maybe ethics in animals
0: and are we smart enough to know how smart animals are
1: and like we said at the beginning the answer seems to be yes maybe (laughs) (laughs) so let us know what you think what kind of examples have you seen of animal morality or just uh evolved cognition within the animals in your everyday life. Do you have examples that you could give us that uh maybe uh could be experiments in the future? Or do you
0: think animals are automata? Or do you think humans are automata?
1: Oh, that's fascinating. We should, we really need to delve into that. That's a good one. Am I a robot? I don't know. I mean, I'm not conscious. Where can you tell us these things? Well, we're all over social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. Instagram's a great place to see pictures of us and determine whether or not we're robots or not. Uh <laughs> another, you really wouldn't be able to tell. Maybe not. Yeah, it depends on if our flesh had been pulled away from our skin. Tyrell Corp. Yeah, there you go. Uh, also, you could always visit stufftoblowyourmind.com.
0: Which is a great place to check up on all the latest blog posts, podcast episodes. Go check out our podcast archive to get all the old episodes, videos, there's probably some other stuff on there. Weird. Robert does great posts about space music, mm-hmm. about monsters,
1: all that. Everything we do is there.
0: And of course, if you want to get in touch with us directly to give us feedback about this episode or any other, or to request topics for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us as always at blowthemindhowstuffworks.com. At